Welcome everyone. I'm Jeffrey Goodman, Director of Marketing and Development for the YMCA of Northwest Louisiana. And we're at 318 Latino Studios for Shreveport Bossier, my city, my community, my home. And our guest today, super special, it's General Elder. So General Elder, thanks for making the time to be here. Well, really Jeff, appreciate it. Thanks for the invitation. Look forward to the session. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, um, hopefully I got my facts straight. In 2009, after 33 years, you retired from the Air Force as the commander of the 8th Air Force and U.S. Strategic Command's Global Strike Component. That's correct. I want to talk today about all the amazing work you have done and what the focus of your work is today. Let's start here if we can. For those who may not know what the 8th Air Force is, can you talk about it and its different roles and responsibilities? Sure. So we, we like to call it the mighty 8th Air Force. That's what it was first called back in World War II and was got that title, quite frankly, because when they would mass all the airplanes for these giant armadas in Europe and you'd look up and all you saw was just the sky filled with airplanes, people started calling it the mighty 8th Air Force. Uh, but it also was really the backbone behind the, the bombing campaign in Europe during World War II. And, uh, I mean, interestingly enough, uh, it, there was a lot of uh, casualties as well. In fact, there were actually more airmen in 8th Air Force lost than uh, just in 8th Air Force than there were total Marines lost in World War II, just to give you kind of a, a size. Uh, but it's always been a, uh, a bomber command. Although in World War II, because of the way they were organized, the bombers actually had escort fighters. That, and the escort fighters were actually part of the bomber command because their role was to escort the bombers to, uh, for their bombing raids. Uh, after uh, World War II, uh, we went into a period of uh, history we called containment, which is uh, the idea that you, you were going to try to contain the Soviet Union inside its borders. Uh, we didn't want to fight the Soviet Union. In fact, the Soviet Union, they were allies of ours in World War II. Uh, but we also didn't want the, the communist empire, if you will, spreading any further. So this notion of containment uh, began. And the long-range bombers then uh, had about the range of what today's fighter aircraft would have. The, today's fighter aircraft would go a long way. And so they, they put a ring, basically, of bases uh, around in Africa, all through Europe, uh, with these long what were considered then long-range bombers. Uh, over time, you got the bombers with greater range, like the B-47 came along, and then the, they had, the, of course, now the B-52. And those bombers can reach there without having to be based in Europe. And so uh, they went into a period which we generally called the deterrence period because the airplanes were there uh, to deter uh, use of a, of a nuclear weapon by by uh, the Soviet Union. So. Fall of the Berlin Wall is uh, roughly 87, 88, that time frame when the kind of the, the uh, communist empire falls apart. Uh, we had great plans. It would be all this peace. In fact, the, uh, the bombers came off of alert because by this time we had ICBMs. And uh, for what they were doing, the ICBMs made more sense. And we now Which produce, stands for what, ICBM? Oh, I'm sorry. It stands for an intercontinental, intercontinental ballistic missile. Okay. So that's the long-range missiles that you see. Uh, coming out of a, a missile silo, and so uh, they they didn't feel that they had to keep the B-52s and at that time the B-1s on alert, 
they would still practice what they call generating the airplanes, being ready to go on alert, and they would put the airplanes on alert for periods of time, and then they take it back off. But uh, basically starting with uh, uh, Desert Shield, Desert Storm, Desert Shield was the actual uh, deployment of all the forces over uh, into the uh, Southwest Asia, uh, basically trying to convince Saddam Hussein to get out of Kuwait. Uh, when that didn't work, then Desert Shield is when they actually, or Desert Storm is when they actually pushed them out. And uh, but bombers were the uh, were the first strikers of that campaign, and and those bombers actually flew from uh, from Barksdale. Uh, it was my squadron, but I had given up command of the squadron uh, two days before uh, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. Uh, and what's happened with the vast improvements in, in the technologies for the bombers now, uh, they're used for just about everything. They're, they're used for maritime surveillance. They're used for maritime strike. They're used for precision strike at long distance. They have standoff weapons that uh, are very useful because you don't have to put the air crew at a, at a high risk. They're still at risk, but not nearly the same risk as when you fly directly overhead. And then they also do uh, what's referred to as close air support. That's when you go in and you drop bombs to support ground forces in the area. And that's a lot of what was done uh, for uh, Operation Enduring Freedom and Iraqi Freedom, those two operations. And one of the big advantages is the persistence. So you can use the fuel to go a long way, or you can get closer and use the fuel to just be orbiting, waiting for the need to be on call. And so they played that role. Now, uh, most recently, they're, they're the most heavily tasked uh, platforms in the Department of Defense, not just the Air Force, and that's because they, they do these missions that are called bomber task force missions. There's various different time or types of uh, missions, but what they do then is they, uh, they will either deploy into an area for a short period of time to either assure an ally, uh, tr try to influence uh, a neutral party, if you will, to be favorable towards the West, or uh, as kind of a deterrence uh, type of activity to make sure that uh, either Russia or China, depending on where you go, or Korea, for that North Korea, uh, is, is aware that we have the capability to very rapidly bring forces into the theater. So that's a lot of the work they do now, but they, they're still involved in the deterrence mission. Uh, when we talk about strategic deterrence, people automatically think about the nuclear part of this, but there's a conventional part as well. And that conventional part is... You, you have to have ways of controlling escalation. Our, our goal is not to employ the weapon, so you want to have a way to send the message uh, without the situation getting to a point where you would. So the use of uh, conventional weapons is, is pretty valuable. So the 8th Air Force today, uh, it was busy when I was there. It's, it's very busy now. Uh, one thing that was interesting at the time when I was the commander of 8th Air Force was uh, 8th Air Force was dual-hatted, basically. We, we had part of our of our operation that was basically based out of Barksdale here, which was responsible for, it wasn't just all the bombers. In fact, we didn't have all the bombers. We had most of the bombers, but we had all the, uh, the uh, what they call ISR, Intel Surveillance and Reconnaissance Platforms. We had the Command and Control Platforms, like the, uh, the J-STARS, which is a ground-moving target indicator aircraft, and the AWACS, which is the airplanes that they use to track uh, airplanes coming in to support fighters that would be their, their engagements. And uh, we also, for part of the time, uh, had the, uh, the the Air Intelligence Agency, which is now called the Air Force ISR Agency. Um, so in that transition, we took over 
running the Air Force networks. We did that for most of the time that I was commander and uh, until the point where we decided we were going to stand up a cyber ops capability. And when they did that, they decided to put that down in San Antonio. So it's, it's been a busy command for a long time, and it's even busier now. It's amazing. Fascinating stuff. Um, and stuff I don't know that much about, and I, I think a lot of people would like to know more, but don't know as much as they'd like mm -hmm. either. In a similar manner, for those who may not know what U.S. Strategic Command is, mm -hmm. Can you talk about it and its different roles yeah. and responsibilities? Yeah. In fact, I started to take you down the two lanes. So the one was the stuff that we would do at uh, Barksdale, which was the stuff for the Air Force. The other hat, as we call it, was the job that I did for Strategic Command. And I was the... Which they call what's the, U.S. Stratcom or... Uh, we tend to refer to it as Stratcom or U.S. But U.S. Strategic Command. Um, and technically, the whole thing is United States Strategic Command. And, and at the time... Strategic Command was also uh, had multiple missions. It's 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 totally focused now really on this uh, deterrence and, and defense mission. But at that time, it had the, what what is now co considered U.S. Space Command was part of Strategic Command, and also what is now called Cyber Command was part of uh, U.S. Strategic Command. My my job there was I was the Joint Force Component Commander for Global Strike and Integration. Long title. They'd abbreviated JFCC and a dash GSI for Global Strike Integration. And I actually had, from a staff standpoint, I had I had more people in Omaha at Office Air Force Base than I had at the 8th Air Force Headquarters here. Uh, we, we basically did all the planning for all of the, the uh, missile and, and uh, bomber uh, aircraft that would be involved in uh, nuclear deterrence. Uh, did all that planning. We, we did all the conventional strategic deterrence planning, although one of the things we did while we were there was we moved the conventional planning here to Barksdale. It's done here now. And uh, and then the integration part was there were other joint force component commands, and you had to have a way to pull those together. And so it was this this group that worked for me was responsible for getting, bringing all those missions together. So uh, it was after I retired, actually, that the, the space part and the cyber parts were separated out. But we were heavily involved in all that at that time. And I think my next, yeah, my next question is about cyber. So let's, let's talk cyberspace for a second. Yeah. Uh, you were the first, I think the first commander of Air Force network operations and led the development of a cyberspace mission for the Air Force. Can you talk about some of this work and for us <laughs> lay people, what does, in quotations, the development of the cyberspace mission for the Air Force mean? Yeah, so it's, it's interesting. Uh, the way the Air Force approached uh, the cyberspace mission was different than uh, the other services. And, and and actually, the Air Force, since that time, has migrated somewhat to the way the other services were doing. I have to tell you that now. But at the time, we treated it as, as an operations mission, and it was a way to have effects, we, we refer to them as global effects, so you can have, create an effect at distance. So the, the people that would do the intelligence part of using cyberspace, they, they worked for me, they were part of the Air Intelligence Agency, but we also had another group that was involved in creating effects, and what we mean by that is uh, typically it would be an influence type operation. So for example, uh, we would get information on, on uh, 
someone's cell phone number, how to get their email address, various different ways. If we wanted to get a message to someone, we could we could get that that message to them. Uh, we would uh, we would have uh, capabilities to uh, uh, confuse a, an opponent uh, about what why a certain system wasn't working. And we typically, when we would do it, we would try to mask how we did it so they wouldn't figure it out. But so we were very active with it and. Uh, they, they still do that, by the way, and, and Cyber Command is heavily involved in, in using it. But for the most part, we tend to think of cyber in purely in, in the operations that were in cyberspace. We actually tried to use cyberspace as a way to create effects, not only in cyberspace, but through cyberspace to create an effect in another domain, whether it could be land, maritime, air, or space. And how would that work exactly? Like, Give me an example of how you would start in cyber but affect another space. Well, I kind of gave you a part of that kind of an example. So, if if we one of the biggest things is to is to try to to get a an adversary like to be looking in the wrong place. So you you could through cyberspace do things to their sensors to make it look like uh, a force was in one place. So then they would move their forces over, but the forces weren't really there. Your forces were somewhere else, and now you could move in without getting the opposition saves you from having casualties that way so that's that's a good example the uh i wasn't involved in this but during oif uh you know most people operation iraqi freedom uh, a lot of people don't know that the uh, the iraqi forces were all messaged about uh that if they formed into squares with their tanks that we wouldn't bomb them and and we didn't and that was all done. There was leaflets involved as well, but for the most part, it was done using uh, network operations to be able to get that information to these commanders and let them know that if they uh, if they didn't do that, then they would be, they would bomb them. But if they formed them in the squares, we would leave them alone. It's actually kind of a funny story about this. Is most people forget about that this had happened, but we were surprised that the Iraqis had buried all of their fighter jets. And after the war, when we actually had a chance to talk to them, we said, why did you bury them? And they said, we buried them because you told us to. You said, you told us, uh, sent us a message that said, we will bomb your aircraft unless you ground them. Well, for us, ground the airplane means that you put it on the, on the ground, not in the ground. But uh, so a little misinterpretation, miscommunication, but uh, that gives you an example of the power of cyberspace. Not just to be, we tend to think about cyberspace coming in and doing something to a system which it can do, uh, but the real reason, real benefit of cyberspace is to is to have an effect on perceptions. And uh, if you think about it, that's that's how we primarily use it. We talk about multiple levels. There's a physical level, which is how you actually the communication path you use to get it. That's the network part. There's a virtual part, which is where the uh, the reality is stored is, is information. And when we, we talk about virtual reality, you're talking about the fact that we've, we've, we're creating an effect on, like with your eyes to make you think that you're somewhere else, but we, we're just feeding the information to now to your eyes to make it appear that you're to you, that you're somewhere else. And, and but because of that, at a cognitive layer, your brain is now able to function as though you really were there. So whenever you, we tend to focus very heavily on that information that middle or virtual layer, but the real goal of the virtual layer is to affect that 
what we would call the cognitive layer. And when you say, and maybe you already explained this and I didn't catch it, but when you say you started cyber for the Air Force started in one place that was different from the other. Yeah, uh, yeah what was different was that the, the, the other services were primarily focused on either using cyber to attack somebody else's cyber capabilities or defending our cyber capabilities from attacks from them. We, we did that as well. We called that network operations, and we differentiated that. In fact, even in our air operations center that we had here, we had a network operations center that did what everybody else did. And then in in our actual uh, effects part of the, of the air operations center, we actually had cyber experts embedded in all the different parts of what goes on in the planning process. To, to actually conduct a normally an air operation, but now it was now a combined air and cyber operation. Okay. So it was, it was different. They 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 do that today. Don't get me wrong, but we we had pretty tightly integrated at the time. Okay. And most of the other services are separate. Well, with the stand of the cyber command, what 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 really has happened is they're the experts on that, and so so cyber does cyber, space does space, and then. It's so they, in a sense they put up some artificial walls, if you will, uh, and so they have ways to work this thing out. We we actually we had the planner sitting in the same room, and now what they will have is they have liaison officers uh, that they work and they they will have coordinated plans. But it's not quite the same as having the same planners develop the whole operation. And I'm gonna ask an idiotic question, but I can't help not yeah. to ask it. So when you start talking about space, what what are we talking about exactly in terms of Defense and in, 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 in space. Well, the space for the longest time was considered this this protected you know, frontier, and uh, it really depends. I like to tell people that there's three different types of space that you're talking about. There's a the space guys will like to refer to some. They'll call it suborbital. I believe that if you're if you're not in, at least in orbit, that you're not really in space. You're you're in aerospace, but not not space, but there's orbital space, and there's different types of orbits, different altitudes above the Earth, the low Earth orbit, which is 92 nautical miles, and then they have a medium Earth orbit, and then there's the, the high geosynchronous Earth orbit. If you get any higher than that, then you leave orbit, okay? If you leave orbit, then if you're between that altitude, which is the geo and the moon, then they refer to that as cislunar, which is between the highest orbit and the lunar. And then... If you go beyond that, now, now you're talking about outer space because you're no longer even affected by the, at all by the Earth's gravitation. Most of the focus today on space is really in those orbit, the orbital area, and that's because that's where we have all our communication satellites, our weather satellites, our position navigation and timing satellites, the GPS that everybody uh, likes to use. But of course, that's what the U.S. uses. Every, every country, or all the major players have their own position, navigation, timing satellites. It's also where all of our uh, intelligence satellites are. So those are the big, big users. So it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, we, we do the same things in space now that we used to do in the other domains, either in the air or from the sea or on, on land. But now you're doing this at this very high altitude and it creates uh, many different problems. And people think one of the biggest problems here, believe it or not, is, is that the, the electronics overheat, and people think that's odd. How could it possibly overheat because it's so cold in space? And it, it is cold in space. However, there's no because there's no air, 
the way that you cool things normally is you have to have something to take the heat away from the, and there's no way to do it when you're in space because there's, there's no air, there's no water. So that's, that's always one of the big challenges for, for the people who work in, in the space businesses. They want to do something, how do you cool it off? And that limits some of the things that you can really do from space. So I believe, I believe this is current. Um, you're on staff at George Mason University yeah. as a research professor. I'm going to mess this up even though you, we, you coached me a little bit beforehand with the Volganau School of Engineering. Right. You currently conduct research in the areas of command and control, deterrence, escalation control, competition short of armed conflict, crisis management, and international actor decision-making. Can you talk about what the above means and some of the current work you're doing in your role at George Mason? Yeah, sure. So, and I'm a research professor. I, I, when I first went there, I, I did a lot of work with graduate students, and as more and more of the, they've, they've actually tightened the, the rules in terms of being able to use international students, by the way, for, for DOD work. So that's, so we still use the students, but it limits some of the things we can have them do. So uh, the command and control work is uh, a lot of what we were just talking about. So uh, the, the work that I do is what they call it systems architecture work. And, and my colleague, who's a, who, who is a longtime systems architect, does not like this analogy, but I think it's a, it's a good way to explain it. If you're trying to do a command and control system, you, you have to figure out exactly what's the purpose, where is it going to be used, uh, kind of what, what's the budget you're going to work with, what attributes does it need to have, and, and if you were going to uh, build an office building somewhere, you get this, you have this piece of property, and an architect would come in and work with the user and say, okay, so what exactly do you want to do in this building? And you'd look at, at where the building was located and. and you know, what the elevation changes were and where the sun hit it and what the utility capabilities were. But the biggest part was, let's figure out exactly what functions you want to do. And I'm going to design the building to support these functions. So that's the main work that I've been doing. Uh, and, the, and the fact that I'm an engineer who has done all these operations makes it useful for me because I can, it's like I'm almost a translator. I can be talking to the operator and say, what, what functions are you trying to have these command and control systems do, and I can talk to the, to the technical people who would actually be building these systems and say, all right, this is what it is they need in technical terms. And then you can have some uh, back and forth as well that allows you to you know, develop, you bring new technologies in that might not have been thought about. So the work I'm uh, doing right now is we, we talk about it as a thing, we refer to it as comprehensive command and control, and then we're really looking at how to eliminate seams between the systems that we use for nuclear command and control, that we use for national uh, senior leader decision making, what we use for the non-nuclear command and control, which is the bulk of what we do. And then uh, other parts that people forget about is we, we have these other agencies of government that tend to use our national military command systems. And they use it, but we, we've never really put the things into those systems to make it easy for them to use. Or, or to make it so that it was easy for us to interact with them. So that's my current major project. Although tied to that, a big piece is we've realized, uh, and, and people think about artificial intelligence or machine learning, they tend to think about now, you know, chat GPT or something like that. 
Uh, we're actually trying to bring in uh, artificial intelligence, but not quite like that. What we're really trying to do is take things that that uh, that a machine can do better than a human, and, and and like looking for patterns in a lot of data is something that a machine can do better than a human can, or doing something that's very repetitive. Even if the human's better at it, if it's repetitive, the humans get tired. If you can train a, a machine to do it, then you can get a lot of improvement. So. Uh, the types of things we're using that for right now, we're developing algorithms. In fact, they refer to this, some people call it algorithmic warfare or algorithmic operations. So you, you, you have a lot of data that typically is, is being reviewed by analysts, but at different times. And, and they, even if they saw the same piece of data, if it happened three months before, they would forget. We are training systems now to be able to look at data uh, that uh, comes over large spaces over a long period of time and detect anomalies. And when you detect the anomaly, that's you've now pointed out to the human, and now the human says, all right, so I wonder why they're doing this. And the, the goal of this really is to try to uh, protect against some kind of a surprise. Uh, dis we, we, we call this a disturbance. What you really want to do is keep a, a disturbance from growing into a crisis. And once you know there's a disturbance in stability, this could be a natural disaster, too. You can pick things up. You say, that's kind of odd. That, that temperature shift there is not normal. That might mean that, you know, we're going to have a tsunami or something like that. Uh, we haven't developed those yet, but that's the kind of thing you might be able to do with it. Uh, a lot of stuff we look at is actually ec economic data because if you're looking for a crisis to develop, it's, it's either going to be a, a social or an economic that trigger something before you see it in the military. So the longer lead term you can get, you might be able to deal with the uh, specific problem before it becomes a military problem. So that's the kind of the whole thing. And your typical students, we're, we're talking about grad students in, in an engineering program at George Mason, is that correct? I mean, the typical well, folks well, that you're working well, with? I, I would only work typically with grad students. I happen to be working with some undergrad students right now. I'm, I'm, they're interested in AI, artificial intelligence, so I'm doing some mentoring with them. But for the most part, the work we're talking about now, it's uh, it's either done by faculty or uh, already graduated students that were there, or we do, we do a lot of partnering with uh, with, with uh, uh, small LFN, small and large companies and uh, pull these different things together. So a lot of this is the, the technologies are all just being developed, and there there's a lot of focus on the commercial applications, which is something like a Chat GPT, but then again, I mean, the, one of the first big applications was, a, they called it Project Maven, uh, which Google was heavily involved with. You recall it was a big deal because the Google, a lot of the Google employees didn't realize that all this work they were doing was, was supporting, you know, the Department of Defense. But that's an example of a very mundane tasks that had to be performed over and over again. And analysts were missing things, so they just would get tired. Uh, the machine never gets tired. So uh, they've continued to develop that system to be able to, you know, to find objects or find anomalies looking over vast areas of, uh, of terrain, for example. And that's going to, we're going to, we're going to get into a little more of that, I think, uh, for most of the rest of the time. But let's, um, let's talk Barksdale Air Force Base for a minute. Okay. Um, how, just from your perspective and, and just for our own education, how important is this base within the overall U.S. Air Force and operations? Well, Barksdale Air Force Base is uh, is actually unique uh, 
in, in the Air Force, and I, I think it might be unique in the Department of Defense in that you have a, on the same base, you have a, a major command headquarters. That's the four-star command, Air Force Global Strike Command. You have an operational headquarters. That's 8th Air Force, which operates the Global Strike Operations Center for Air Force Global Strike Command. You have a operational wing, that's second bomb wing, and you also have a, a reserve wing here, uh, the 317, which is uh, which does all the training, uh, not only for the B-52s here, but also for the, uh, they, they also train the, uh, uh, the B-1s as well. And to have all that in, in one place like that is really unusual. Uh, another thing most people in the Air Force don't realize, this is the only uh, air operations center that's actually in CONUS that does full uh, spectrum, all domain operations. There's, there's one other uh, air operations center that's, uh, that's called First Air Force, and, uh, and that's the one that does the air defense, but it, it's strictly an air defense piece. They don't plan bombing missions, stuff like that. So, so when we're looking at ways to do things that might be applicable to other air operations center then you, you have uh, an air operation that is actually here in the States. And when you're trying to you know, uh, test new systems out, things like that, this becomes a, a convenient place, if you will, to do it. Its focus is on long-range strike as opposed to the other ones tend to be focused on regional operations. Uh, but still, it's, it's unique from that standpoint. This is where all of the, the bomber task force missions are planned. Half of them, well, not half. Half of the B-52 ones are, are executed from here. They're the B-1s and the B-2s also do bomber task force missions. Uh, but all of these different things I talked about earlier, th this is the central, this is the hub. I don't think most people in the community realize how significant the, the work uh, that is being done at Barksdale Air Force Base is in terms of the overall from a national security standpoint. Which kind of brings me to that next question, which is, you know, it's been suggested to me that there are growing needs and business opportunities locally to support the type of work taking place at Barksdale. I would like to spend the remainder of our discussion here. First, what businesses currently exist today in our community that are supporting needs at Barksdale? Sure. Well, there's... Uh... There's a number of businesses, in fact, some, some that have uh, just come in here recently. Uh, one you would be very familiar with is Praces does work with uh, Barksdale Air Force Base. Uh, General Dynamics uh, IT, GDIT, they refer to it. Uh, actually, doesn't the, the part that's here does not do a lot of work with Air Force Global Strike Command because this particular uh, part of GDIT does enterprise operations and, and not, not the warfighter ops, but GDIT itself overall writ large does do warfighter ops so that and i think there's some potential that we've been talking in fact that there could be some benefits for gdit to bring some parts of that of their business into here um, radiance technologies who you would be familiar with which is the uh, sponsor of the independence bowl uh part of the reason they came in here or new teams be the sponsor of the independence bowl is they came in here to do work with Air Force Global Strike Command. Uh, they're, they're they're doing a lot of different things with Air Force Global Strike Command, but uh, some of it has to do with directed energy, uh, like lasers. Uh, they're doing uh, some uh, uh, work in the uh, AI area. In fact, the I think one of the things they would really like to do is have this become a 
kind of an artificial intelligence center of excellence for the for the company have that here. They're they're doing a lot of work in that area. They do a artificial reality and uh, and virtual reality. Uh, or I meant to say augmented reality. Uh, they do that that type of work, and uh, they're also heavily involved in um, hypersonic technologies and and. Uh, Air Force Gold Strike Command for the Air Force is the executive agent for pursuing hypersonic technologies because it's largely something that would be expected to be used by a standoff weapon, and that's something that the bombers would use. So, so they've come into this area. Uh, Stevenson Stellar Corporation uh, was actually down in Baton Rouge. Uh, they they moved their headquarters up into uh, the area here, and uh, they're they're now. In fact, they, they now have a 5G test lab that they're operating. Uh, they, they actually do quite a bit of work in San Antonio, in Colorado Springs, but the actual headquarters here and their 5G test bed is located here. And uh, they're, they are doing uh, quite a bit of work trying to get involved in uh, kind of their specialty really is cybersecurity for space type things. But, um, but they're branching out into these other areas like, uh, like 5G. And I expect you're going to see uh, quite a bit of growth from uh, them over the years. Uh, the Louisiana Tech does uh, uh, quite a bit of uh, work. LSU Shreveport does quite a bit of work. Bossier Parish Community College does. So there's these different academic institutions that are doing quite a bit of work. And, and Centenary, by the way, is looking to do uh, some additional work with, uh, with the base. And they've got some, uh, some programs that would be of utility to what, what's happening there. Uh, at, at, at BRF, which is t typically thought of as, you know, for the, all the biomedical things they do. In fact, it, it, it's kind of like IBM. It's, uh, it stands for Biomedical Research Foundation, but they started calling it BRF because they're doing more things outside that space, and so they want to be thought of as an economic development uh, operation. So they, they, they run an entrepreneurial acceleration program there. Uh, they, they have a program called Shreveport Next, which is heavily involved with trying to recruit uh, companies into the area, and then they uh, they stood up another thing called Collaboration Link, which I'm I am heavily involved with, uh, which is how to bring uh, businesses together here in the Arquitex uh, to be able to do uh, research and development work that would support the Air Force Global Strike Command mission. So those those are all here right now, and then. Uh, You've got a Northrop presence, Northrop Grumman presence here, Boeing presence here, uh, Lockheed Martin, uh, Joan Dynamics Mission Systems, and we'd really like to see them grow those as more than just a, uh, a presence. But, but you are starting to see more and more of this uh, kind of uh, attraction to come to this area. Uh, LSUS with BRF uh, uh, hosted a um, Global Power Symposium uh, back, uh, I guess, about a month ago, and uh, we actually had two objectives for this. One was to have the community get some kind of an idea about the types of things that go on on the base, particularly Air Force Gold Strike Command. But the other part was to bring in the defense contractors and give them an opportunity to, to interface directly with the staff at, at Air Force Gold Strike Command. And there, that was done by LSUS the, the next day. Uh, the, the base itself, 8th Air Force, was actually hosted a, another session that was for what we call clear defense contracts. So they actually had one that was at a classified level where they where they actually were able to have some in-depth in discussions with the with the uh, 
participants who are all defense contractors about the things that they need and to hear from the defense contracts about things they thought they could possibly do for the command. So, uh, so I, I think you're going to see more and more growth in this area as as we continue to promote these missions and with the, the B-52 modernization that's going on, uh, that is, that's going to bring a lot of people back in here as well because uh, the big part is the, the Boeing part of this thing, which is you know, putting on the new radar and putting the new engines on. But associated with that, there's a lot of other things, and that's where the small businesses come in. And so we're trying to do everything we can to make it easy for the small businesses to be able to be part of this. Which kind of takes me to my last question. Um, and that question is, lastly, as you see it, um, and you've, you've talked a little bit about this, but more specifically, what are the gaps that still exist in our community in order for us to best support the evolving needs at Barksdale and for the military as a whole? Well, the there's part of it that says that the answer is, is that we we really don't uh, have gaps, uh, but in terms of things that would make it easier for some of these defense contractors to come in here, the uh, part of it uh, has to do. I, when I talk to people in the community, uh, they don't realize just all the capabilities that exist here, and. And, and there's some misperceptions outside, in part because we we actually foment those misperceptions. So one one crazy misperception for people that live here is, I mean, if you talk to people like in the Washington D.C. area, you would think that we experience hurricanes uh, like once or twice a month in Shreveport. And of course, I have to explain to them we don't have hurricanes in Shreveport ever. Our weather's like Dallas Fort Worth, and they usually look at me and they say, well, Dallas-Fort Worth doesn't have hurricanes. Said, exactly, that's exactly true. Um, and uh, the other uh, kind of misperception has to do with that because of the... And you're saying, let me just interrupt one second, you're saying an uh, important reason to, to sort of clarify that is because we're, we're maybe losing some business because of that misperception. Well, well, they don't even look because they say we don't want to be in a place where there's going to be hurricanes. There aren't hurricanes and in northwest Louisiana, so it's important. They also think that we're in a tornado alley, and uh, I said there is one just north of us, but we happen to be just south of that. And we tell them we're talking about the Barksdale bubble. I don't know if it's really a Barksdale bubble, but it is true that compared to you know uh, you know even 50 miles north of here, uh, going into say for Arkansas, uh, for example, or Nebraska, where <clears throat> where you do see a lot of tornadoes, we we, it's not that we don't have tornadoes. Everybody has tornadoes, but it's not a tornado alley. It's not. Uh, the other thing is they they think that the uh, that cooling is a problem here. We're talking about cooling from an industrial standpoint. Well, you don't cool with the air. You cool with water. There's a lot of water to be able to cool here, so it's good for that. And uh, the other thing is they they think that we don't have a lot of infrastructure to support uh, kind of the emerging technologies that require a lot of fiber and things like that. Well, I-20 is, is the major uh, east-west fiber line, or one of the three uh, for the country. And every one of the, of the, of the big carriers uses those, uh, those uh, transit ways along I-20. It's just a matter of tapping into it. So, I mean, it would be like saying, well, if you're next to a river and you say, well, there's no water because I don't, I don't have a pipe to it. 
well, put a pipe there and then you'll have it. So it, it, it creates some misperceptions uh, from, from those. So it, it's, these, these are not real gaps. So I said they're not real gaps. There's, there's perceived gaps. They also, for some reason, have some weird ideas about our, our power capabilities. And I have to point out to them, we, we're right at the intersection of you know, the three major power grids in the U.S. And so from a standpoint of stability and arrangements that the local power companies have in terms of being able to tap into each other's power grids, we have a, we have a huge advantage from that standpoint as well. Then you have the east, west, north, south uh, roads, you have the railroads, and, and, the, and the airport is actually pretty capable uh, in, in terms of if, when you're trying to use it for cargo, it, it, it's a major cargo hub, and that industrial park there is huge. It has huge capacity, and the, and the port itself, the, the Cattle Bossier Port, is growing tremendously. So, you know, when you when you actually can get the companies to actually look at it, say, yeah, you know, I had no idea that you, we had all this capability. But uh, I, I think one of the gaps is, is a chicken-egg problem, which is, uh, and, and one of the things we're trying to do is create what we refer to as an as an ecosystem, and it's not it's not just for uh, doing the military business. It's also for doing the health business. It's for kind of some of the IT related uh, businesses in the uh, as well as still it affects the oil and gas things as, and that and that is we we have a really good set as I mentioned earlier all these different universities here and most of these graduates end up leaving the state because there aren't any jobs on the other hand we have a problem getting the, some of the companies to come in here because they don't think there's any workforce here and so we're, we're creating a lot of a lot of workforce just because the companies are here they're leaving that's, that's the chicken-egg problem. So uh, we, we have been trying to work with these companies to get them to realize that, that there are, you know, former Louisiana residents went to school here at one of the schools in the state, would love to come back here if there was a place for them to come work. We're seeing that work out real well, for example, with, with Radiance, you know, that uh, they're not having any trouble finding people that want to come work for them. And I think that will start to catch on. So... Um, but in terms of the th things that the community can do, it's uh, uh, re realistically the, uh, the more that we can kind of em embrace the uh, you know the, what's done out at the base and, and know what's going on there, and every chance you get to you know, tell the story, uh, that's really useful. But uh, the, uh, the from a gap standpoint, where we are just perfectly suited, I tell people it's like uh, we we're trying to build a fire and we've got all this stuff here, but no one no one is bringing in the match to get it started. I'm convinced. Uh, I think Radiance is going to be one of the probably this initial first kick the thing off, but there's a lot of other companies that uh, they won't talk about. But I mean, Shreveport Next uh, has been talking to a lot of companies. NL, NLEP, which is the uh, Northwest uh, uh, north, oh wait, no, it's north, not 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 just northwest. North Louisiana Economic Partners, uh, they they are talking to a lot of businesses, and, and some of these misperceptions we talked about are starting to fall away. And you, you see things like that Amazon plant or, or, or uh, fulfillment center that came in here. I think we're going to see a lot of other things coming in here as well. That's I love everything you just said. A lot of which I haven't heard before, and I, I want to hear more and more. 
uh, people saying that. So those were all my questions. Is there anything else that you think I failed to ask or you think uh, you would love to yeah. talk about or uh, yeah. is important to talk about that we haven't discussed yet? Well, uh, you know, so uh, one thing, sticking with that same topic I was just on, and there's one we could go back to, is uh, so I was originally raised in a, a suburb of Detroit, and and uh, growing up, we'd go into Detroit for everything. Had, had everything you could ever want, sports team, museums, uh, uh, art, theater, and, uh, and, and it eventually went into a decline in, in part, largely in part because of the change in the, what was happening in the, in the motor vehicle industry. And, uh, but, uh, and, and it kind of went into disrepair. It would be similar to what happened here where this thing, Shreveport itself, when I first started coming here, which was back in the uh, late 70s, uh, we would come here for the bombing competition and we would go into Shreveport. And it, it was the second largest city in Louisiana and it was just doing great, you know. And then we hit the big uh, oil boot or bust and, and because we didn't have a, at that time a, a really diverse economy, uh, things fell kind of fell apart, and then one of the big things, Sun Oil was here, and Sun Oil ended up kind of consolidating back into Houston. Well, in Detroit right now, uh, there was a there was a former uh, well now he is back a resident who became the CEO of Quicken Loans and said, "I am, I think Detroit could could be the Detroit that I knew growing up, so I'm going to move my headquarters there." And so he invested a lot of money to to put the things in place that would make it attractive for the workforce that he needed to be able to to hire to come in. And uh, so, and a lot of it had to do with you know quality of life for for the, the age group he was looking at, which was you know college graduates through you know mid thirties that kind of thing. Uh, you see some of that happening in Shreveport now with all the stuff that's going on with the loft departments and things like that. But he moved the headquarters there. Well, shortly after he moved the headquarters there, GM and Ford moved their corporate, international corporate headquarters back into Detroit. Once they did, then their subs, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the subprime contractors, they, they started moving their stuff back in. The sports teams that all left, they've all come back into Detroit. Uh, so, and in fact, I saw a thing last year where it's now one of a top ten destination city for for leisure, you know, and that's but it's taken like twenty years. But if there was a, if there's someone that we could find that was a that could do that same thing here, I think it only takes one big company moving something big in here, and then that's the chicken egg thing. Uh, those things will start to kind of uh, correct themselves, and I, so I think. It may seem counterintuitive, but some of the things that we probably should be doing in, in Shreveport, and, and Bozier has a, has been trying to do some of this already. You see it in Shreveport as well. Is you've got to make it inviting to to be in the city, not just during the day, but at, at night. You know, so you know the walking paths. You know, so you, like the Shreveport Commons is a good example. Of what they've done in Bozier with the uh, uh, East District or East Bank uh, District. Th those are the types of things that. I think would start bringing uh, more people into the, the two cities at night and make people comfortable there. And when that happens, th that is something the community could, where they could do something. 
So I mean, you know, so the it, it gets to be infrastructure related things. But if you bring these big companies in here, once chicken egg again, once they come here, the the money that allows you to do this will happen. It's a matter of how how do you how do you get the thing started in the first place. So that's that's the one area where I think the the community could could make it more welcoming. I think for these companies that come here, it's just make it look really attractive. Um, you know, I think I thought when I started to tell you about the stuff I do at George Mason, um, you, you, you read all the, about half the stuff that I do. Actually, these days it's probably more like 70 percent is the command and control and the artificial intelligence things. Um, but the other thirty percent, before I would have told you, fifty percent is in this area of uh, international actor decision making. It's related to understanding uh, influence operations and uh, deterrence. Uh, escalation control. What's funny about this is that how I got into this in the first place, besides the fact that I, I did that from a strategy standpoint in the military, is that uh, we were approached by the joint staff uh, 12 years ago, I guess it was, and there, there were some things going on with India and Pakistan at the time, and they were really worried that between them they were going to do something crazy that was going to cause one of them to use a nuclear weapon. And obviously that was bad. You really just don't you don't want any kind of nuclear weapon used. Just coincidentally, at that time, we, we had both Indian and Pakistani student graduate students working in the lab, which made it easy to do some of the stuff we were, we were going to do. But they asked us, they said, could you, I, we know you design command control systems, could you reverse engineer the decision support system for these two countries? We thought, we'll never try that before, but sure, we'll give it a try. So that's how it started. We... And it was all we did, did it all in classified reverse engineered how how they think and how the culture approaches things. We got to use their own students to or students from those countries to help us do that. We did that for one year. They liked it so much. We then, of course, we couldn't use those students anymore. Once we did it, we, we did a classified version of the same thing, and that classified version was actually used in real life to actually tap down a, um, a crisis that occurred that possibly could have led to some kind of a problem and. And once that started, we started getting these different projects ever since that was focused on on, on trying to un understand um, the uh, kind of what we now are referring to as uh, competition, uh, understand deterrence. So, so most people in the military are focused on doing uh, combat or warfighting ops, with, these, with the exception of, we tend to call them the special ops, and that's because we... When we think of special ops, we think of the Delta Force and the things they do. But the big thing for special ops is that they do all these things that are not actually combat to try to get things done. Uh, what we're actually realizing is that you're, well, they would call the general purpose force. The whole force needs to be thinking that way. And so, uh, in fact, they have a, they just, the joint staff just released a, a joint concept for competing, and which I think they've needed for a long time. There's a joint concept for uh, deterrence operations, and, and of course they have a joint warfighting concept. Most people want to go read the joint warfighting concept. The real money is going to be made in the in the com competition and the deterrence, at least in the minds of people like Air Force Gold Strike Command. So from an Air Force standpoint, all these things that we've talked about, there's the only other places that they think about the things I just talked about is either Air Mobility Command, which is at Scott because they do all the the humanitarian type missions and they do all the airlift and they also run the tankers and then there's the air force special ops so as i 
when I think people here should know that when they're hearing some of these good things going on, and and it's come particularly if it's come from the Air Force, there's a there's a high probability that the strategy for all that was was largely started here because that's their mission. Uh, deterrence is not just about you know trying to press something against an adversary. It's about con convincing uh, one of our adversaries that they shouldn't take an action that would cause us to have to react. And that's a little bit different. We want them to exercise restraint. Good, there's good competition and bad competition. I mean, good competition makes your, how you perform, raises up your level of performance. Bad competition is, is when you do things where you try to destroy one another. What we're trying to do is keep it more on the good competition side. So that's been a big part of the work. And that, that's what we talked about at the Global um, Power Symposium, by the way, that that whole unclassed day was focused on Air Force Global Strike Command's role in doing these uh, competition operations across the, across the globe and how the bomber task forces in particular uh, are able to support not just what's done by the military, but what's done by the State Department and by the Justice Department and others. And once again, I think very few people in this community probably have uh, any real understanding. I will tell you, most people in the Air Force don't know all the things that Global Strike does, but we at least ought to make sure that the people here in the community uh, have an appreciation for all the work they're doing. I couldn't agree more, and I, yeah. I, I didn't know uh, 1% of that. So. Yeah. so appreciate you being here. Anything else? you? No, I think uh, I, I really enjoy uh, this part of the country. I think it has huge potential, and uh, I think people should be very proud of, uh, of the things that are happening here. And uh, if they look around, they may see an opportunity that there's something that they can do that will increase our opportunities even more. Thanks, General Elder. Yeah. So thanks. appreciate all yeah. you're doing and really yeah. appreciate yeah. you making the time to be here. Yeah. Well, Jeff, thanks for having me out here. Absolutely. Yeah.